When you think of the Prohibition era, the mind immediately goes to famous American gangsters like Al Capone. But the Maritimes were home to our own rum-running gangsters as well. And the biggest, the most powerful, and the most widely feared gang was the Madawaska Mob, led by a man who chose the distinctly less than intimidating alias, Joe Walnut. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happen in your own backyard, the podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes, with your host and author, Andrew McClan. So Joe Walnut's real name was considerably less intimidating than even his chosen gangster name, which was Albini J. Violette. However, he was described by his nemesis, Detective William Carr, as tall and slim, agile as a cat, with cruel, thin lips. His eyes were black as coal, yet slightly protruding, with white bloodshot from constant drinking. He was reported to have a fiendish temper and few scruples. He was a real adventurer, a relic of the old buccaneering type. There was nothing on earth that he enjoyed more than to match his wits against those of the men who represented law and order. We sometimes think of prohibition as an American thing, but we also had a ban on alcohol right here in New Brunswick too. Perhaps even more surprising was that in our case, prohibition was not unilaterally imposed upon poor, beleaguered, and thirsty New Brunswickers against their will. It was actually voted for by the people of New Brunswick. A provincial referendum was held on the prohibition question in 1920, and the people voted in favor of banning alcohol, including beer and wine, by a massive margin. There were twice as many votes for prohibition as there were against it. In the landslide anti-alcohol referendum victory, there was one notable holdout, Madawaska County. In Madawaska, in the north of New Brunswick, the trade and the transport of liquor across the border right next to it in the United States was well underway long before prohibition. And even before liquor was illegal, much of that trade was already clandestine, just to avoid customs and taxes and duties. Joe Walnut's story before Prohibition is shrouded in mystery. He seems to have arrived in Madawaska from Quebec as a military policeman during the First World War. And somehow he came to own a hotel, called the Brunswick Hotel in St. Leonard which would become the base of operations. On the American side of the border, he also owned a hotel called Hammond House in Van Buren, in a small town in Maine just across the border from St. Leonard. And uh, he started running liquor between these two hotels he was using as safe houses. His illegal international rum running operation appears to have been thriving long before Prohibition. So for him... Prohibition suddenly meant a massive rise in profits and opportunity. The stories about the fiery and temperamental Joe Walnut are truly remarkable. In a particularly famous story, he personally rammed his car into the gate blocking the Canadian-American border. The gate was destroyed and his car went careening into the ditch. Border guards came over and inspected his car and they found no alcohol. Meanwhile, 
Joe Walnut was throwing an apoplectic conniption fit over his ruined car. He was screaming, shouting, stomping around, apparently literally foaming at the mouth. And he was threatening to sue the shocked and bewildered American border guards for ruining his car. During the commotion, a big truck owned by Joe Walnut and laden down with alcohol zoomed right through the broken border crossing and into the United States. Only two years into Prohibition, Joe Walnut's operation was so well known that he already had a problem with his hotel being constantly raided by liquor inspectors. Exasperated by this constant interference in his business, he decided to put an end to it. Upon being tipped off that another raid was happening, he decided to set a trap for the police. The liquor inspectors came in and raided his hotel, and sure enough, they found eight barrels of whiskey in the basement. Although the inspectors posted guards at the hotel, Joe Walnut knew of a secret entrance to the basement. In the night, his Madawaska mobsters rolled out the whiskey and replaced it with barrels of water. Soon after, a court case against Joe Walnut took place in Fredericton. Joe Walnut produced his liquor license, which allowed him to serve alcohol for pharmaceutical purposes at his hotel, and uh, even to export it to the United States for pharmaceutical purposes, of course. Both of which were illegal for pharmaceutical purposes. The court checked his paperwork and found that it was in order. At this point, Joe Walnut requested that the court test his whiskey. When the court did so, they found eight barrels of water. Upon hearing this news, Joe Walnut threw another dramatic temper tantrum in the court in Fredericton, complete with screaming, shouting, spitting, crying, and wailing, and accusing the court that they had let some crooks steal the liquor while it was in transit. <laughs> so Joe Walnut sued his arch nemesis, the New Brunswick Board of Liquor Commissioners, for the cost of the missing eight barrels of liquor. In his lawsuit, the court sided with Joe Walnut, and they awarded him a settlement of $8,954, plus court fees, to be paid back. Uh, accounting for inflation, that would be roughly $134,000 in today's money. And so, the government of New Brunswick had to pay a notorious rum runner over $1,000 per barrel, which would be $15,000 per barrel in today's money for Madawaska County water. This story became infamous all over New Brunswick, and in Madawaska, in particular, Joe Walnut became a folk hero. This also had an intensely demoralizing effect on the police and liquor inspectors, who generally shied away from interfering with Joe Walnut and the Madawaska mob after that. With his newfound fame and a mythology as being untouchable, Joe Walnut's activities ramped up. Joe Walnut insisted on profiting from every aspect of rum running. He operated the distilleries, the bottling plants, the ships, the trucks, as well as hotels and the bars that his wares were sold in. He ran entire gangs, not only in Madawaska, but all over Maine as well, 
he branched out in his activities. He was trading everything from the finest cognac straight from Paris, or shipments of Montreal beer, which many bootleggers avoided just because of its bulk. Joe Walnut would sell to anyone. If you wanted to buy a single shot in the Brunswick Hotel, or a few bottles for private use, or a boxcar filled with beer, or whiskey by the barrel, the Madawaska mob would sell it to you. Joe Walnut's business was profitable, and he came to own houses and properties in Palm Beach, down in Florida, and he traveled the world, including Europe, and uh, all over both North and South America, and even the West Indies. He developed tastes, fine Cuban cigars, and silks imported from China. He owned a personal yacht, as well as a fleet of fast schooners which were used to transport liquor from the French islands of St. Pierre and Miquelon, off the coast of Newfoundland, as well as all the way from down in Jamaica, up to the coast of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. However, as the 1920s rolled on, Walnut's business was flourishing. He himself was not doing so well anymore. You see, Joe Walnut had something of a drinking problem. Uh, apparently, he was staying in a constant, half-drunk state at all times. And as the decade went on, his drinking really escalated and he was getting sloppy, including being arrested multiple times for public intoxication, both in the United States and in Canada. In 1927, New Brunswick started moving to repeal prohibition, and Joe Walnut made a risky move to import a massive shipment of ethanol by train, which was worth an estimated $80,000, which would be equal to $1.2 million in today's money. While ethanol was technically alcohol, it was legal to buy and sell because chemicals were added to it to make it poisonous. This is called denaturated alcohol. Joe Walnut's gang has gotten into the business of buying this stuff from the States, redistilling it in the Madawaska to remove these chemical additives and to make it not poison, bottling it up in brand name labels of high-end American spirits and reselling it in the United States for an immense profit. Transporting this stuff by train, however, was risky because CN Rail had its own private police force and they were beyond the control of Joe's gang. The shipment of ethanol rolled across the border into New Brunswick with a railway police guard under the command of William Carr, who was a very by-the-books, straight-laced detective from England, and a man who had taken it as a personal quest to destroy the Madawaska mob and arrest Joe Walnut. The paperwork for the ethanol shipment was not in order. The names of both the shipper and the receiver were fake, And furthermore, the cargo transit duties, which on a shipment was, remember, worth $80,000, the cargo transit fees are only $240, but they weren't paid. So without this paperwork and without the transit fees, William Carr wasn't going to give up this precious, poisonous cargo. So he had it impounded at McAdam on the New Brunswick side of the border. Well, Joe Walnut and the Madawaska mob were not about to let such a massive payday go. So they bribed officials at the McAdam train station to move the train up to St. Leonard, 
his home base, where it was parked right outside of his main warehouse. Meanwhile, Detective William Carr and his CN Rail Police moved with the train to St. Leonard and kept it guard. For days, the train sat across from the warehouse untouched. As William Carr and Joe Walnut played a game of cat and mouse, each waiting the other out. During this time, William Carr discovered that the local police were unhelpful and they would not cooperate with him. Actually, the chief wouldn't even talk to them. And in fact, it seemed like the police were rather upset that the CN Rail detectives were in St. Leonard at all. One night, thinking Carr and the detectives were asleep, Walnut moved in with the Madawaska mob. As Joe Walnut and a convoy of trucks rolled up, Carr and the CN detectives surprised and arrested Walnut and his gang. Joe Walnut tried everything to get Detective Carr to release him, ranging from pretending to be drunk and incoherent at first. That didn't work, so he tried insults and shouting. That didn't work either, so he tried pleading on his knees and crying. And that didn't work either, so he tried charging a Detective Carr and headbutting him. Uh, that didn't work either. So finally, he tried to bribe him with $50,000 cash, which is three quarters of a million dollars in today's money. Detective William Carr refused the bribe and arrested Joe Walnut. However, this straight-laced, by-the-book English railway detective would soon learn how the law worked in Madawaska County. Local police showed up, including the police chief who, as it turned out, was Joe Walnut's nephew. The police chief immediately ordered Joe Walnut not to be brought to the county jail, but back to the Brunswick Hotel. A trial was hastily organized, and much to Detective Carr's shock and horror, it took place not in a courtroom, but in the local judge's house. Despite Detective Carr having caught Joe Walnut in the act, the judge dismissed the most serious charges of theft and even the charge of assaulting Carr as having insufficient evidence. Joe Walnut was fined $10 for trespassing and set free. CN Rail Detective William Carr quit his job and moved back home to England. That ended up being one of Joe Walnut's last victories. Although the law never did catch up with Joe Walnut, his own drinking did. He died of ill health, attributed to stress and to his own heavy drinking in 1928, only one year after his arrest by Detective William Carr, and only months after New Brunswick repealed prohibition and allowed alcohol to be sold legally again. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thank you for listening, and tune in next week for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. Backyard.